Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, You may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Not touch it, or you will die. Certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband with her. He ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, cool of the day, hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked. So I hid said, told you that you were naked, eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, curse it above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike his heel. The woman, he said, I will make your pain childbearing very severe, painful labor to give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband to rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife, fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Curse it ground because of you. Painful toil will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. It will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, your food until you return brown from it taken. Dust you are, dust. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord God said, Man has now become like one of us, knowing good. Not be allowed to reach out his hand. Take also, give life, live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden, worked the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, placed on the side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, the flaming sword, flashing back and forth, guard the way of life. Father, we are so prone to pride and self-centeredness think that we know better Father we 
We ask that you teach us humility, that we will learn that the only way is to turn to you, your salvation. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to empower the words that Mark brings us. Ask it, Jesus. Thank you, Ron. We're in the midst of what I believe to be an extremely important series of sermons and worship themes. The series title, as you can see in your bulletins, is Biblical Christians, Who Are We? And the subtitle is A Sermon Series on Biblical Christian Identity, Practice, and Purpose. I believe this series, and especially its biblical Christian substance and worldview, to be exceptionally important because it's extremely relevant and timely to our time and our place. Every day that passes, fundamental truths of the Bible, even what God intended when he created us, what it means and what it should look like for us to be human beings, are under assault, being censored, and on the way to becoming academic and cultural blasphemy, even hate speech. As a result, Christians and Christian churches are having to decide and assert anew what we believe on these fundamental matters. When just a short time ago, the whole of society largely assumed what the Bible clearly asserts, namely, one, that God created human beings, two, that God created human beings male and female, and three, that God created human beings male and female, more or less, it wasn't standard acceptance of this premise, but more or less, that he created us to image himself and represent himself on the earth. What constitutes fundamental aspects of proper human identity has become a mainstream controversy now. For less time than most of us have been alive and much less time than some of us have been adults, remembering a simpler and more certain time. Now, before we go on, we should acknowledge that the church, for all our good intentions, have done our part to offend unnecessarily, hurt deeply, and even dehumanize fellow human beings who are equally created in God's own image, male and female, he created us to represent himself on the earth. We just don't all realize our God-given unique identity and purpose. Still, in the last 30 years or so, anti-God, anti-creation, even anti-human assertions, contrary to the revelation of scripture and God's intention for our being, have swept in along the internet, social media, academia, and other means to dominate hearts, minds, discourse, and even churches. Now, recent polling shows, in a majority opinion of the people in our place and time. The solution would seem obvious. We can jettison the Bible as a primary source of offending attitudes and actions to free ourselves from such constraint. 
and many have, and many more will, and churches and Christians too. Or we can believe and behave consistent with the Bible in opposition to current cultural and societal sensibilities, albeit newly found in the last half century, and churches too. Now, some will suggest that virtually no one, uh, I'm sorry, now some will suggest and have suggested there is a viable middle position, a third way, perhaps more ways, that it's not or it doesn't have to be an either or situation. The problem with that presumption is that virtually no one and no churches have been able to navigate that narrow knife's edge to become more biblical and more Christian. Instead, they all, or, or, or nearly all, have ended up in the ditch on one side or the other. Almost inevitably, Christians and churches who make the attempt get drawn into the cultural, societal, and worldly fray, or they isolate and cloister themselves against the darkness, becoming unloving judges, juries, and executioners of those who differ from their increasingly hardened positions. To be clear, both responses are equally less than biblical, equally less than Christian. So this series of sermons and worship themes is offered in faith. That we will all be helped to believe, think, behave, and hope more biblically and more Christianly. Indeed, we will find that to be more biblical is to be more Christian. And to be more Christian is to be more biblical. So a month ago, beginning with the first two sermons entitled, We Are Grace-Gifted Bible People, speaking, answering the question, who are we as biblical Christians? We are grace-gifted Bible people. We began from a vital starting point. The Bible is God's word written, and it is good, useful, reliable, and authoritative for all matters, doctrinal and practical, that is what we believe and how we live, for the biblical Christian life to which it speaks. True Christians and true churches believe and apply, we might even say rather than apply, and obey the Bible. Then two Sundays ago, we went back to the beginning to discern the Bible's teaching about our origin and identity with the question, who are we as human beings? The answer to the question is as clear as it is profound. God created us male and female, in his own image, to represent himself on the earth. True Christians and true churches believe and teach this too. This week, we take a quick look at what happened to us. By that, I mean what happened to interrupt and hinder our God-given identity and ability to image God and represent him on the earth. We clearly aren't doing that very well these days, and what, what happened? Yes, as human beings, but then more specifically as his people today. Let's look at it under the title, We Are All Fallen Creatures in Need of Grace. I want you to notice those, those phrases. We are all, there are no exceptions, the Bible, makes, the Bible makes this very clear, for all have fallen short of God's glory. That's one place out of many that we could turn to get this truth, but we are all fallen creatures. We are not our own makers. 
We are not our own, in fact. We have been bought with the price, the precious blood of Jesus. We have been created by a creative, sovereign God to fulfill his creative, sovereign purpose, namely to image him and to represent himself on the earth. We are all fallen creatures in need. In need of what? In need of God's grace. Fallenness requires a remedy, a remedy to be picked up or to pull, pulled out, and God's grace is the only means for that to happen. Please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Genesis 3. It is possibly in your version, as Ron suggested, on page 3 of your Bible, or it's one page to the left or the right. The Bible clearly and consistently teaches from Genesis to Revelation. And so we believe and affirm that very early on in our history, in fact, as early as our first parents named here as Adam and Eve, and since human beings have denied our divinely ordained and majestic creative purpose to image God and represent him on the earth to pursue much, much lesser purposes taking on false identities. We are not who we should be, and in many, in many senses, we are not who we present ourselves to be. To be specific, our first parents, Adam and Eve, and every one of us following their lead until today, they by choice, we both by nature and by choice, have imaged far more our fellow fallen parents than our Heavenly Father, and we've represented ourselves and our own interests more than God. A legacy of sin and death was set into motion and since has been passed on from generation to generation. When Adam and Eve believed and obeyed the deadly deceptive words of the devil who is a liar and the father of lies, Rather than the life-giving true words of the one true and living God, there and our good, loving, sovereign, and true creator. Their problem, and ours too, was that they went for the short-term, convenient, attractive, and easy self-deception that sin will not kill us and death is not our enemy. Rather than the long-term, defer deferred gratification, self-sacrificial way of truth, love, obedience, holiness, righteousness, mercy, and God's original intention for us all, don't miss this, eternal life. God's intention for us all was, has been all along, and will always be eternal life. But our first parents and every one of their children after them, including us and our children, have chosen, have preferred a lesser, superficial, namely material and physical version of life and ultimately the death that goes with it. We are all the inheritors of and co-conspirators to our own demise. 
Now, as bad and depressing and terrifying as that news may be, there's a sense in which it's not the worst news. The worst news is that this is what the Bible clearly says, which means it's what God's words are to us, and we're still, as human beings, preferring the self-deluding words of the lying devil because we'd rather go with his version of reality. I speak here more generally of human beings in, 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 broadly. I am speaking, of course, representationally of the whole human race, which tendencies I definitely share, we all share, which is to say we're all fallen creatures in need of grace. This is our title, of course, and our central truth is a slightly expanded version of it, but it goes right along with where we've been so far and where we're going this Sunday and next. It's there in your upper left-hand corner of your bulletins. We read it earlier, but here we go one more time. Just as a reminder, every human being who ever lived, except Jesus, every human being who ever lived, though created uniquely male or female to image God and represent him on the earth, that's the purpose for every human being who ever lived, whether we acknowledge it, whether we know about it, whether we fulfill it or not, Every human being who ever lived is a fallen creature in need of being saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So let's look at it as it is recorded in Genesis 3, this fall of humanity into sin. If you're taking notes, and some of you are, I know, perhaps you'd like to write down my four-point outline just below the central truth on the inside upper left corner of your bulletin. And if you are taking notes, and if you do write out my outline, then please leave some space between the four points because I have a single lesson for each one, a single lesson from the text that we can take and we can apply to, 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 to ask God to help us to get back to his original glorious purpose and identity for us. Okay, here it is. From the historical narrative presented in Genesis 3, number one, the fall of humanity into sin. We'll look at that in verses 1 through 7, the fall of humanity into sin. Number two, the exposure caused by sin and the exposure of sin. And we'll look at that in verses 8 through 13. The exposure caused by sin and the exposure of sin, verses 8 through 13. Number three, God's judgment on sin. We could also say the promised consequences of sin. Verses 14 to 19, God's judgment on sin, or also known as the promised consequences of sin. And number four, the beginning of recovery also known as God's grace rescues, verses 20 through 24, okay? So we've got the fall of humanity into sin, verses 1, and se 1 through 7, the exposure caused by sin and the exposure of sin, verses 8 through 13, God's judgment on sin, also known as the promised consequences of sin, verses 14 to 19, and then number 4, the beginning of recovery, or God's grace rescues, verses 20 to 24. So let's look first at the narrative of the fall of humanity into sin. I'm going to read the text, um, perhaps make a, a few editorial comments along the way, 
and then we'll continue on. Verses 1 of Genesis chapter 3 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The Lord God here is Yahweh Elohim. We've talked about those two names for God. Uh, interestingly enough, and we won't go into this, but interestingly enough, Elohim is uh, God's representation throughout the first chapter. And then throughout the second chapter, he is referred to as the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Um, and on into the third chapter, both God Elohim and the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, are used. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, had made. He said to the woman, that is the serpent, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now notice, the question, though in form is rhetorical, it absolutely prompts her, provokes her to answer because no, God didn't say they can't eat of any tree in the garden. So she responds, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Now we noted last week that there are two trees highlighted in the midst of the garden, in the middle of the garden, weren't there? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both of those trees are in the middle. And so her, her, her response is incomplete at least. And she, for whatever reason, doesn't mention the other tree in the middle of the garden, which is the tree of life. Because they were free to eat from the tree of life. But not from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God, now, there are two possibilities here. First of all, we don't have that in the text. God never told anybody, either Adam or Eve, that you may not touch it. I mean, it's probably a good idea. But God gave Adam the order. I think it's fairly certain that then God allowed Adam to pass that on to Eve. And whether he added to what God said or touch it or not is, is unanswerable because it's not in the text. Where did she get it? She, she may have added on as we are inclined to do or she may have gotten expanded instructions just to highlight the fact, stay away from that tree. We could see that happening. We could understand how that happened. We might even do that ourselves. You know what? Don't eat it. Don't even touch it. Stay away from it lest you die. Verse 4. But the, sermon said, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. So here's a frontal assault on God's words, calling God a liar, directly. That's what's at stake here. God's word, 
against Satan's word. And Satan is saying, God's lying to you. Don't listen to him. He has ulterior motives, and he'll get into that in just a second. But what God told you is wrong. We see this repeated and approximated all the time in the media these days. And maybe it's not anything new, it's just more prevalent because the media is so dominant in our culture. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he, he's trying to keep something away from you. He's trying to keep away your destiny from you. So don't listen to him. He's lying to you, and he's got an ulterior motive because he knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. And he wants to be the only. So not only is God called a liar, but his character is also in deep question here. So when the woman, this is verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, check, so is chocolate cake. That would have been much more tempting to me, chocolate cake. Yeah. And that it was a delight to the eyes, check, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, check, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And we've been making a mess of our sexual relationship with our mates ever since, out of shame rather than out of some other appropriate context. Now, there are some aspects of God's word, of God's will, and of God's actions that include some mystery attached to them. But this isn't one of those mysterious aspects. We might wonder why the eating of a piece of fruit, times two, Adam and Eve, or Eve and Adam, might be worthy of a sentence of death. We may wonder why a cosmic time out wouldn't be more appropriate. But neither the facts of the case nor the law are in question here. Remember, we read last Sunday, Genesis 2, 9, and then picked it up, verses 15, 16, and 17, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here, in the first recording, the tree of life is first and prominent, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is second and secondary. There were two trees in the middle of the garden. Verse 15, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it, Work was a joy. His stewardship of the earth was meaningful and purposeful, given to him by God to represent himself on the earth. And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
Isn't it just like us? We can have everything in the world but this one or two things, and therefore God is not being fair. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if the facts of the case and the law are clear, and they are, this means the narrative of the fall of humanity into sin is not about eating fruit. It's about breaking the law. And the penalty for breaking the law, God's law, where the law is the very words of the Lord God, is death. These things are all clear in the text. The only issue that remains then is the very issue that we find in verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 3. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, doing what God said will keep you in under wraps. Doing what God said not to do will free you up. That's what freedom is about. Is that not where we are today? In spades? Also clubs, diamonds, and hearts. I cannot put it any better than Jesus to the lesson, or so the lesson comes from John 17, verses 15, 16, and 17. As Jesus prays to his Father and our Father in heaven, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Isn't this interesting? But that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Here's the lesson. God's word is truth and life. Everything contrary to it is a lie leading us to death. God's word is truth and life. Everything contrary to it is a lie leading us to death. To death. So that's the narrative of the fall of humanity into sin, and what I believe is the big picture answer or lesson that we can take from it. Point number two, the narrative of the exposure caused by sin and the exposure of sin. So there are two exposures going on here. <clears throat> One is of Adam and Eve, that they became aware by evil means that they were naked. There's nothing wrong with that. But because of sin caused shame and the exposure of sin, that is that the Lord exposed to them the sin that they had committed. And in fact, he didn't really have to expose it, did he? They were hiding from him when they heard him coming. Let's look at it, verses 18 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord Yahweh, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, th th this is not original with me, but it it's just kind of jumps out of, the text, out of the text at you. If God is omnipresent, that is, everywhere present at all times, and omniscient, that is, knows all things at all times, why is he asking Adam, where are you? 
Doesn't he already know where Adam is? Of course he does. It's clear from the text and from what happens uh, immediately after this, he's not asking for information. He's asking Adam, do you know where you are? What are you doing there? Why are you hiding from me when before we had this unhindered fellowship? Adam, where are you? Verse 10, and he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. That's an interesting phrase. You think he heard his footsteps? I I think not. I like to imagine that, that God sings. We can, we can prove that God sings throughout the Bible, but we can't prove that this is what Adam was talking about. But this is just, if I'm making a movie, it would be God singing. It wouldn't be just footsteps. It would be God singing through the garden, through the orchard, so to speak. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, that is, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is where shame comes from. It's where it began, and it has been with us ever since. The man and the woman went from being naked in creation and unashamed before the Lord God, their creator, and everybody else, apparently, to withdrawing into isolation, especially from the one who created them because of their awareness of their nakedness, or as Radar used to put it in MASH, their nakedity. I lived in Iowa for eight years, and I can assure you that that's really not the way they talk in Iowa, but, uh, but that's the way... Radar from Ottumwa, Iowa, spoke. The Lord God had created them, male and female, to image himself and represent himself on the earth. But now they hid in shame from him. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. It's now the plight, it's the bane, it's the challenge of every human being who ever lived. I was hiding myself because I heard you coming and I did not want to face you with my sin. That's shame. And we all deal with it. Now, one way to react to shame both in the narrative and in our lives is to repent of the sin that so easily entangles us as Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Allowing the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as John puts it in 1 John chapter 1 and verse verse 9. And the grace of God through faith enable the Spirit to make us new. New creations, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Or we can go the opposite way. We can blame our Creator. For creating us this way. 
and decide that we are the masters of our own destinies, becoming shameless while doing so. And sadly, one way or another, this describes virtually the whole world in which we live today. What's the lesson? Here it is, God's ways are all pure. All other ways defile us and make us less than human and more like animals. I'd like you to process that over the next week or so. God's ways are all pure. All other ways defile us and make us less than human and more like animals. We are, after all, created uniquely to image and represent God himself, male and female. Number three, we're almost there. The narrative of God's judgment on sin, or we might say the promised consequences of sin, verses 14 to 19. The narrative of God's judgment on sin, or we could say the promised consequences of sin, verses 14 to 19. Verse 14 and following. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, said to the serpent, notice nobody escapes and the, the greatest consequences are to the man. Don't miss that. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Now notice the contrast. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, now who is he? Well, he isn't in the immediate context. He kind of is just dropped in there from nowhere. Because we've got the serpent, we've got the woman, we've got the serpent's offspring, we've got her offspring. He, singular by the way, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And here, just, just in a wonderful way, we get just one line of prophecy out of this as it relates to Jesus Christ. How do we know? Well, because the New Testament cites it as, as applying to and referring to Jesus Christ when he comes. He, the woman's offspring, but my son, is what is in the background, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You'll think it's more than that, more than just a bruising of the heel, because you, you think you, you'll think that you have won, but you will have lost. And that head wound will lead to your demise, devil, serpent, Satan. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. I, I wish I had the time to go into all of these, but I just, I, I'm in a big picture mode right now. But there is some, some delicious, very helpful truth here that if we could just accept it, would put us into a much better position to relate to each other, both in an orderly fashion and in a joyful fashion.
I want you to notice that all of these are post-fall, right? So, men, we cannot, we should not, we must not take this curse upon the woman as marching orders for us. These are all consequences of the fall. If we love our wives, we will not be the imposers of them. This is talking about her inclination outward. It's not talking about our action upon her. Your desire, woman, shall be contrary to your husband. So there will be some, according to your new nature, there will be some problem, some hindrance, some contention between you and your husband, but he in his sin shall rule over you. That's the meaning of the, sin, of the, of the curse. So none of us can take this and say, well, see, God said so, so that I'm doing the right thing. You're, you're doing the exact opposite of God's intention, if that's your choice. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, he is not saying, because you listen to the voice of your wife, because your wife is weaker, because your wife doesn't know anything, because your wife isn't as intelligent, all the things that, that men say to women. It's not his point in the least. His point is, because you listen to your wife, rather than my words, rather than my voice, because you have listened to the voice of your wife instead of mine, is the point, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Remember, God gave the instructions to Adam. Adam clearly gave the instructions to Eve. How do we know that? Because she recited them, ish, back to God. You shall not eat of it. You, Adam, shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. So I said earlier that the curse was greater upon Adam. That is true both in substance and in content. You'll notice that there are several more lines to Adam's curse than there are either to the serpent or to the woman. There's theological meaning in that, I believe. We don't have a whole lot of time to get into it. But if we're listening, we often hear claims of innocence where sin has done its work. And if not sheer innocence, then excuse. We will also hear God being blamed. Either his word and ways are flawed or he's a judgmental, mean, domineering ogre or my all-time favorite, he's just not fair. If he was fair, we could do what we want. You know, freedom. Such was the early case of Adam and Eve. Quote, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate who for her own part added, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So it was the woman, the serpent, or really God, who was to blame. 
And here's where the cultural battle is enjoined. Today and throughout human history, since the fall of humanity into sin, the sovereign goodness, righteousness, and truth of the one true and living God, the creator of all that exists, including us, is at stake here. Is he sovereign? Is he good? Is he righteous? Is he true? Is he even a he? And what gives him, or her, or it, or them, the right and authority to determine our individual or collective destinies? Does he, she, it, or they have the right to determine what is good, right, and true? Here's the lesson. God, his word, his will, and his ways are all sovereignly good. Sovereignly righteous and sovereignly true. To know him in Christ Jesus is to love and obey him as such. One more time. God, his word, his will, and his ways are all sovereignly good, sovereignly righteous, and sovereignly true. To know him in Christ Jesus is to love and obey him as such. Finally, number four, the narrative of the beginning of recovery or God's grace rescues. We see this. In verses 20 through 24, I'll just read them quickly. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You notice God didn't go anywhere. He didn't confront Adam in the garden, lay curses upon him, and say, good luck in your death, and leave. And Yahweh Elohim made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then he covered them their shame, in other words. Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, said, behold, the man has become like one of us, so now... We return back to, I believe, to the Trinity in this conversation that they began in the creation of human beings. The man has become like one of us. So as often as the case, there's a little bit of truth in what the devil says, but then there's a twisting to make it false and evil. They become, he has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He, Yahweh Elohim, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. For our purposes this morning, also for, the, for purposes of finding our way home to the Lord God, our Creator, and for purposes of leading others home to the Lord God, their Creator, this is the briefest and the clearest, the best and the most important part. This is the part where the Lord God intervenes as Savior with his grace and mercy, even as he just judged with curses. 
Of course, while he himself, the Lord God himself, began his redeeming, reconciling, and saving work immediately right there in the garden, it continues until today. The great lawmaker and righteous judge has become for us a savior, a redeemer, even a friend. But his redeeming work only continues today if and when it runs right through the person, the life, the cross, the death, the resurrection, and the intercession of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as revealed in God's good and authoritative word, Holy Scripture, the Bible. This is, or, or he is, our only hope and way back home to our God, our great and good creator. There is no other way, there is no other gate, there is no other name by which we must be saved. Here's the lesson. God has always desired and preferred mercy over judgment. Which will we choose? God has always desired and preferred mercy over judgment. Which will we choose? This has been We Are All Fallen Creatures in Need of God's Grace. May we all aspire individually and God's people to a renewed high view of God, to such a high view of his creation, his whole creation, and to such a high view of our own unique place in it. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for this word of yours that humbles us, teaches us, saves us. In your word is life and truth. We recognize that, and yet we find that with our first parents, we struggle to choose it. We never know the devil's lives lead to death, and yet we find them so appealing, so tantalizing, so tempting. And we know that you are a forgiving God. That is one of the clarion calls of the, test of, of the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, that you are a forgiving God with steadfast love and mercy from eternity past to eternity future. And we, we want to be in on that, Lord. Help us, help us, help us to place our whole hope and our whole faith in your provision for us that you brought right to us as you did the woman to the man, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. David got a lot of things wrong. But there was something about his heart that attracted God. And he got it right in Psalm 51 when he poured out his repentance and pleas for mercy from God. And we know that it was what it was about because the text, it's actually in the text, this is not an editor's heading, says to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Listen to his words. Have mercy on me, O God, this is Elohim, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach, the, teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O Elohim. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And, and then this is the surprising part. Then, after this has happened, Lord Elohim, after you have done this to me, the spirit moves him to confess and to testify then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O Elohim, O Elohim of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, this is Adonai, O Adonai, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O Elohim, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In other words, proper worship. May this be our prayer as well. Lord, thank you for what you're doing among us these days. These are strange days. It has been a very, very odd couple of years. We feel so disjointed and disparate. Lord, restore us again soon, we ask. And restore us to a right relationship to you for those of us who may be out of relationship. And I pray, Lord, that this time that we've been away from each other will not mark time that we have been away from you, but even if it does, will you restore us again? In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time. Thanks for coming.